Section 20 of On Christian Doctrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Craig Uselman, DeForest, Wisconsin. On Christian Doctrine by Augustine of Hippo. Translated by J. F. Shaw. Section 20, Book 4, Chapters 13 through 18. Chapter 13. The Hearer Must Be Moved As Well As Instructed. But for the sake of those who are so fastidious that they do not care for truth, unless it is put in the form of a pleasing discourse, no small place has been assigned in eloquence to the art of pleasing. And yet, even this is not enough for those stubborn-minded men who both understand and are pleased with the teacher's discourse without deriving any profit from it. For what does it profit a man that he both confesses the truth and praises the eloquence if he does not yield his consent, when it is only for the sake of securing his consent that the speaker, in urging the truth, gives careful attention to what he says. If the truths taught are such that to believe or to know them is enough, to give one's assent implies nothing more than to confess that they are true. When, however, the truth taught is one that must be carried into practice, and that is taught for the very purpose of being practiced, it is useless to be persuaded of the truth of what is said. It is useless to be pleased with the manner in which it is said, if it be not so learnt as to be practiced. The eloquent divine, then, when he is urging a practical truth, must not only teach so as to give instruction, and please so as to keep up the attention, but he must also sway the mind so as to subdue the will. For if a man be not moved by the force of truth, though it is demonstrated to his own confession, and clothed in beauty of style, nothing remains but to subdue him by the power of eloquence. Chapter 14. Beauty of Diction to be in keeping with the matter. And so much labor has been spent by men on the beauty of expression here spoken of, that not only is it not our duty to do, but it is our duty to shun and abhor many and heinous deeds of wickedness and baseness, which wicked and base men have with great eloquence recommended not with a view to gaining assent, but merely for the sake of being read with pleasure. But may God avert from his church what the prophet Jeremiah says of the synagogue of the Jews. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests applaud them with their hands. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? O eloquence, which is the more terrible from its purity, and the more crushing from its solidity, Assuredly, it is a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. For to this God himself has by the same prophet compared his own words spoken through his holy prophets. God forbid, then, God forbid, that with us the priest should applaud the false prophet, and that God's people should love to have it so. God forbid, I say, that with us there should be such terrible madness. For what shall we do in the end thereof? And assuredly it is preferable, even though what is said should be less intelligible, less pleasing, and less persuasive, that truth be spoken, and that what is just, not what is iniquitous, be listened to with pleasure. But this, of course, cannot be unless what is true and just be expressed with elegance. In serious assembly, moreover, such as is spoken of when it is said, I will praise thee among much people, no pleasure is derived from that species of eloquence which indeed says nothing that is false, but which buries small and unimportant truths under a frothy mass of ornamental words, such as would not be graceful or dignified 
even if used to adorn great and fundamental truths. And something of this sort occurs in the letter of the blessed Cyprian, which I think came there by accident, or else was inserted designedly with this view, that posterity might see how the wholesome discipline of Christian teaching had cured him of that redundancy of language, and confined him to a more dignified and modest form of eloquence, such as we find in his subsequent letters, a style which is admired without effort, and sought after with eagerness, but is not attained without great difficulty. He says then, in one place, Let us seek this abode, the neighboring solitudes afford a retreat where, whilst the spreading shoots of the vine-trees, pendulous and intertwined, creep amongst the supporting reeds, the leafy covering has made a portico of vine. There is wonderful fluency and exuberance of language here, but it is too florid to be pleasing to serious minds. But people who are fond of this style are apt to think that men who do not use it, but employ a more chastened style, do so because they cannot attain the former, not because their judgment teaches them to avoid it. Wherefore this holy man shows both that he can speak in that style, for he has done so once, and that he does not choose, for he never chooses it again. Chapter 15. The Christian Teacher Should Pray Before Preaching And so our Christian orator, while he says what is just and holy and good, and he ought never to say anything else, does all he can to be heard with intelligence, with pleasure, and with obedience. And he need not doubt that if he succeed in this object, and so far as he succeeds, he will succeed more by piety and prayer than by gifts of oratory. And so he ought to pray for himself, and for those he is about to address, before he attempts to speak. And when the hour is come that he must speak, he ought, before he opens his mouth, to lift up his thirsty soul to God, to drink in what he is about to pour forth, and to be himself filled with what he is about to distribute. For as, in regard to every matter of faith and love, there are many things that may be said, and many ways of saying them, who knows what it is expedient at a given moment for us to say, or to be heard saying, except God, who knows the hearts of all? And who can make us say what we ought, and in the way we ought, except him in whose hand both we and our speeches are? Accordingly, he who is anxious both to know and to teach should learn all that is to be taught, and acquire such a faculty of speech as is suitable for a divine. But when the hour for speech arrives, let him reflect upon that saying of our Lord's, as better suited to the wants of a pious mind. Take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. The Holy Spirit, then, speaks thus in those who, for Christ's sake, are delivered to the persecutors, why not also in those who deliver Christ's message to those who are willing to learn? Chapter 16. Human Directions Not to be Despised, Though God Makes the True Teacher Now if anyone says that we need not direct men how or what they should teach, since the Holy Spirit makes them teachers, he may as well say that we need not pray, since our Lord says, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him or that the Apostle Paul should not have given directions to Timothy and Titus as to how or what they should teach others. And these three apostolic epistles ought to be constantly before the eyes of everyone who has obtained the position of a teacher in the church. In the first epistle to Timothy, do we not read, These things command and teach. What these things are has been told previously. Do we not read there? Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. 
Is it not said in the second epistle, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me? And is he not there told, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? And in the same place, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And so in the epistle to Titus, does he not say that a bishop ought to hold fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers? There too he says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, and so on. And there too these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, and so on. What then are we to think? Does the apostle in any way contradict himself, when, though he says that men are made teachers by the operation of the Holy Spirit, he yet himself gives them directions how and what they should teach? Or are we to understand that though the duty of men to teach, even the teachers, does not cease when the Holy Spirit is given, yet that neither is he who planteth anything, nor he who watereth, but God who giveth the increase. Wherefore, though holy men be our helpers, or even holy angels assist us, no one learns aright the things that pertain to life with God, until God makes him ready to learn from himself. That God who is thus addressed in the psalm, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. And so the same apostle says to Timothy himself, speaking, of course, as teacher to disciple, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. For as the medicines which men apply to the bodies of their fellow men are of no avail except God gives them virtue, who can heal without their aid, though they cannot without his, and yet they are applied, and if it be done from a sense of duty, it is esteemed a work of mercy or benevolence, so the aids of teaching applied through the instrumentality of men are of advantage to the soul only when God works to make them of advantage, who could give the gospel to man even without the help or agency of men. Chapter 17. Threefold Division of the Various Styles of Speech He then, who in speaking aims at enforcing what is good, should not despise any of those three objects, either to teach or to give pleasure or to move, and should pray and strive, as we have said above, to be heard with intelligence, with pleasure, and with ready compliance. And when he does this with elegance and propriety, he may justly be called eloquent, even though he do not carry with him the assent of his hearer. For it is these three ends, that is, teaching, giving pleasure, and moving, that the great master of Roman eloquence himself seems to have intended that the following three directions should subserve. He, then, shall be eloquent who can say little things in a subdued style, moderate things in a temperate style, and great things in a majestic style, as if he had taken in also the three ends mentioned above, and had embraced the whole in one sentence thus. He, then, shall be eloquent who can say little things in a subdued style, in order to give instruction, moderate things in a temperate style, in order to give pleasure, and great things in a majestic style, in order to sway the mind. Chapter 18. The Christian Orator is Constantly Dealing with Great Matters. 
Now the author I have quoted could have exemplified these three directions, as laid down by himself, in regard to legal questions. He could not, however, have done so in regard to ecclesiastical questions, the only ones that an address such as I wish to give shape to is concerned with. For of legal questions, those are called small which have reference to pecuniary transactions. Those great where a matter relating to man's life or liberty comes up. Cases, again, which have to do with neither of these, and where the intention is not to get the hearer to do or to pronounce judgment upon anything, but only to give him pleasure, occupy, as it were, a middle place between the former two, and are on that account called middling or moderate. For moderate things get their name from modus, a measure, and it is an abuse, not a proper use of the word moderate, to put it for little. In questions like ours, however, where all things, and especially those addressed to the people from the place of authority, ought to have reference to men's salvation, and that not their temporal but their eternal salvation, and where also the thing to be guarded against is eternal ruin, everything that we say is important, so much so that even what the preacher says about pecuniary matters, whether it have reference to loss or gain, whether the amount be great or small, should not seem unimportant. For justice is never unimportant, and justice ought assuredly to be observed, even in small affairs of money. As our Lord says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And that which is least, then, is very little, but to be faithful in that which is least is great. For as the nature of a circle, that is, all lines drawn from the center to the circumference are equal, is the same in a great disc as it is in the smallest coin. So the greatness of justice is in no degree lessened, though the matters in which justice is applied be small. And when the Apostle spoke about trials in regard to secular affairs, and what were these but matters of money, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If, then, ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Why is it that the apostle is so indignant, and in that he thus accuses and upbraids and chides and threatens? Why is it that the changes in his tone so frequent and so abrupt testify to the depth of his emotion? Why is it, in fine, that he speaks in a tone so exalted about matters so very trifling? Did secular matters deserve so much at his hands? God forbid. No. But all this is done for the sake of justice, charity, and piety, which in the judgment of every sober mind are great, even when applied to matters the very least. Of course, if we were giving men advice as to how they ought to conduct secular cases, either for themselves or their connections, before the church courts, he would rightly advise them to conduct them quietly as matters of little moment. But we are treating of the manner of speech of the man who is to be a teacher of the truths which deliver us from eternal misery and bring us to eternal happiness. 
and whenever these truths are spoken of whether in public or private whether to one or many whether to friends or enemies whether in a continuous discourse or in conversation whether in tracts or in books or in letters long or short they are of great importance unless indeed we are prepared to say that because a cup of cold water is a very trifling and common thing the saying of our lord that he who gives a cup of cold water to one of his disciples shall in no wise lose his reward is very trivial and unimportant or that when a preacher takes this saying as his text he should think his subject very unimportant and therefore speak without either eloquence or power but in a subdued and humble style is it not the case that when we happen to speak on this subject to the people and the presence of god is with us so that what we say is not altogether unworthy of the subject a tongue of fire springs up out of that cold water which inflames even the cold hearts of men with a zeal for doing works of mercy in hope of an eternal reward end of section twenty recording by craig uselman deforest wisconsin